What's good, anybody out there? This is your friendly Crimson Stain, and welcome to the Grave Wax Podcast. It's episode 15, and once again, I've put off making an episode for an entire month, but we're back. Um, it would have been better to have done this earlier because uh, on March 9th was our one-year anniversary. That's right, we've been doing this poorly conceived project for an entire year. So uh, that's a good time, always a good time to take inventory and consider what we've accomplished and what we have yet to accomplish, which we will probably not do. But uh, I guess this is the second best time to record this episode since it's April 1st, it's April Fool's Day. And no, I do not have any demeaning... A humiliating prank in store for you. There's no kind of rug that's going to be pulled out from under you in some hilarious way, uh, because that's just what we do every episode. Every day is April Fool. Every episode, anyway, is uh, April Fool's Day. I think so. Uh, there's no need to hobble this episode with some sort of forced uh, joke that's not going to work anyway. So we're not doing that. Just put that out of your mind. Um, if you want that sort of thing, go elsewhere. Also, I'm just thinking about the uh, I'm probably not going to be able to finish this and upload it today. So the fact that it's April Fool's Day is completely irrelevant. It will be long past that date by the time this is actually put up. So just never mind this whole monologue. Let's just let's just move on. So looking back over the past year, uh, there's a few lessons I think we can learn from all of this. And I think the first one is that there's just way too many podcasts out there. There's way too many horror movie podcasts, there's way too many horror movie YouTube channels, and Blu-ray collecting channels, and all that kind of nonsense. And uh, I think that, you know, what it shows is that a lot of these uh, projects are just real ego-driven, desperate attempts to um, gain some sort of, uh, you know, ego gratification uh, once all other avenues of accomplishment have kind of closed themselves off to you. And it's really just kind of sad and pathetic. And I think that works great for us. I think that's a great uh, launching pad for what we're trying to accomplish here at Gravewax. And I'm looking forward to many more years of spitting these uh, silly tales. We're going to we're gonna get just more... We have got, I think for the next year, I think we've got two goals. One, uh, sillier movies. Two, um, more hate. More hate-filled uh, messages. And I think we can accomplish both of these simultaneously. And, uh, you know, there's nothing like the present to get started. Now, the movie I've picked out for today, it's not really that silly, but it is uh, a more classic horror film. It's more of a, actually more of a film noir than a horror film. And uh, I wanted to do something older. This is something all the way from 1940. So I think this will uh, kind of cover that base. And film noir, it's kind of... It was something I've been uh, watching since high school. Uh, I'm sure there was no uh, social problems in my life that caused me to seek this out uh, in the prime of my life, but um, there, there we are. Uh, film noir, great genre, old school, like anti-heroes, uh, atmospheric, moody uh, lighting and camera work, and just kind of nihilistic, uh, crime-filled... Um, subject matter and you know it's it's only once you've been everything's been taken away from you that you find out who you are and so that's kind of what i think the best film noirs achieve is when 
you know, it's just putting a lot of pressure on someone and either they're going to they're either going to crack or rise to the occasion and either way the outcome is still not determined. So you have a lot of ways these movies can go. So it actually even though it's it's kind of thought of as a formulaic genre, there's actually is a lot of variation and a lot of creativity, a lot of paths to cr- different creative, you know, ends within the genre, but you've got to, you've got to search for it, I think. And, uh, a lot of people talk about what's the first film noir. And since it wasn't, it isn't like a, a genre that people, you know, set out to make per se. It's something kind of people, critics looking back on a body of films end up saying, Oh, this is a, a new thing. This is a new thing we're coming up with to categorize all these films that came before. So Saying what the first film noir is is pointless and meaningless, but a lot of people give it to this film, Stranger on the Third Floor, which we'll be covering today. Some people go back even farther and say that it's M, Fritz Lang's M, but uh, it doesn't really matter because both of them star Peter Lorre, and he he's definitely one of the faces of film noir, faces of the kind of espionage, crime, uh, underground, uh, you know, evil within society you see it in uh like for say uh, uh the maltese falcon and, and movies like that so he's definitely a, a great film noir presence as well as a horror movie presence and in this film he's not really a star he he kind of comes in uh kind of late into the film but he's just a master and it, it really shows you it takes a good film and makes it great when you have that kind of uh star power I was going to say charisma, but I'm not sure that is the appropriate word for Peter Lorre playing this psychotic uh, guy who's going to show up. And it's just a real, it's almost like a real modern uh, thing. I think that might be one of the things and one of the curses of uh, film noir is it really dragged film kicking and screaming into a more modern uh, phase where, you know, I mean, you had the those movies from like the early 30s that were, you know, before the production code that were pretty pretty sick and uh, degenerate and great and then uh, you had kind of a, a refiguring you had what i think are necessary restraints on you know this mass media which is totally you know always threatening to go out of control at any moment and from there the uh the hollywood magicians kind of like worked with that formula into bringing a new kind of um darkness to the masses so uh with that said uh let's jump into it this is going to be 1940s stranger on the third floor so we're gonna start with one of those old-timey really cool title sequences uh you know it's not it's not necessarily animation but it's like probably done with miniatures or something i don't know how they do it but it's uh this little scene playing back uh as the credits roll and you know i don't want to derail the episode immediately but you know in the old t- old days how do they even get words on the screen it's kind of bizarre i've looked for videos explaining how they would do the you know the the credit crawls and everything no one really explains it i know it's done optically uh but how exactly was it done no one seems to care but me anyway uh peter lorry gets top billing even though he's not really the star you would say he was more the the heavy that comes in in the third act but i guess he was the biggest name at the time so we're going to open on a busy city street with some busy city street music if this this is some music you know you can instantly hear it they would have played it on the simpsons when someone says 
city on the grow, that kind of thing. And from those busy streets, we're going to go into a very busy diner. Ugh, my absolutely least favorite way to eat in a crowded, busy restaurant. But we're at this counter, and at the counter sits Jane. And she's saving a seat for her boyfriend, who's not there yet, obviously. And there's all these pushy uh, people trying to sit down next to her. And she's just she's adamant that she's not going to give up that seat. And then uh, Michael comes in. That's the boyfriend. He's going to sit down. Of course, he's going to sneak up beside her and, and ask her if the seat's taken. And she doesn't even look up and says no, which is kind of it's giving you the the mood of the city where people don't even meet your eye. And, you know, you just tell people no perfunctorily without even acknowledging their existence, really. Uh, just like real cities today, except uh, with less stabbings. I don't know why that is. But um, anyway, uh, the it, he reveals himself, his beautiful face to his beautiful girlfriend, and they're they're happy again, and they sit down for a nice breakfast, and they start talking about their life and their situation. Now, apparently, they're not married yet, so but he's found them an apartment, and it's going to be fully furnished for sixty dollars a month. Can you believe it? That's when money was real, huh? Or when it was uh, less fake, anyway. So. He's um he's apparently we're we're gonna learn he is a reporter scum of the earth, uh but he's getting a twelve dollar raise a whole twelve dollar raise because of, uh he's breaking uh, a, a big story for the New York Star he works that's his uh, paper of note, and so obviously whenever you know a couple in those days are gonna uh, move in together that means they're gonna get married so this is a very big momentous uh, decision for them and they're very happy they're a cute Hollywood couple. So, you know, like something's going to go very wrong for them very soon. And anyway, so why is he getting this raise? He's getting a raise because he is the star witness at an upcoming murder trial. And in fact, the headline of that paper says, uh, star reporter, key witness in murder case. Uh, you know, the, the old timey newspaper headlines always were able to explain things so succinctly. And, uh, so that's why Mike says, uh, Hey, we can get married tomorrow. And so, they're, you know, things really just move fast in the big city. They don't stand on ceremony, and uh, they got it. They're on their they're city on the grow, so they got to keep um, everything. You got to get your raise, you get your apartment, you get married. It all takes about uh, 24 hours, and then you're set for life. And then stagnation can set in then, and only then. And so Jane's looking over the paper in this article, and uh, we get a hint of, you know, is Jane really a, a good, loyal 40s woman? Because she says, oh, she looks at, there, there's, you know, the um, the perpetrator, his photo is in there. And it's like, oh, he looks so young. And it's like, lady, don't, don't rain on my parade. I'm, I'm, this is the whole setup to our life together. And you're like shitting on it very subtly. Uh, I wonder if, you know, what's really going on there. What, what's her real feelings about Michael? And uh, their life, their potential life together. We got to wonder about that and see how that will develop. So from there, we take things over to the this press room in the courthouse. And there's all these cynical reporters. They're sitting around waiting for the trial. They're playing cards. They're debating the strategy of, the, of what the defense and everyone's going to do. And then that's when Mike arrives. He's the big man now. And he's, he's so he just shows up whenever he wants and then they start kidding him and, you know in 1940s style they start uh, giving them some little pokes some ribs some good time japes you might say and uh he's got one friend in in this uh 
press room. His name's Martin, and uh, he's he, uh, he genuinely congratulates him, and he's, you know, this case is a sure thing, and it's it's what's going to, you know, uh, propel him to stardom. And uh, Michael's, a, you know, he might be a little bit insincere, but he's like, ah, oh, you know, me, are you sure? Am I the one? And um, Martin's like, well, do you expect uh, poor Mug's word over a member of the press? Which is a funny commentary on both their opinion of themselves at the time and uh, what, you know, what was in the public consciousness of what a journalist was at the time. So now we're having open testimony in the courtroom. And Mike's on the stand, and he's testifying that on the night of the murder, he went into Nick's coffee shop and he saw this character, Briggs, who's played by Elisha Cook Jr., and uh, he's standing over Nick's body, who had his neck cut and it was bleeding into the open cash register. And not only that, he had recognized Briggs from a few days earlier. And, uh, in fact, it was, um, Briggs had been saying something uh, a little incriminating at that time. He had said, you wouldn't call me a deadbeat if I had a gun in your belly. Uh, and which is, you know, there's one of the many cautionary tales of this film is watch what you say. Don't say too much. Don't talk out of anger. And definitely don't fed post because your words will come back to haunt you. Uh, just a little lesson for all my uh, listeners out there. So the public defender is going to object to this, you know, being uh, irrelevant. But, you know, he's bald, so you know he's not a good uh, lawyer. I mean, that's just how things read in uh, these movies. And the judge is not even really paying attention. So he's basically, we're getting a sense that, uh, you know, this isn't the greatest uh execution of justice in america ever and uh, i think mike even says uh he paid for um briggs's coffee that day so like you know this is just mike just patting himself on the back all the way around here uh so when the when the defense gets up uh he says but you didn't actually see him kill nick uh and that was the only question he asked and no and it's like that that's all uh, so mike can leave the stand and he goes down into the he, he's walking back uh to the the seats there the gallery as it were and uh briggs he passes by him and he says thanks for that cup of coffee uh so i guess at least that wasn't a lie he did buy him a cup of coffee he wasn't just grandstanding on, on the stand there so uh mike walks back and he uh sits down next to jane and they start uh whispering to each other and actually like 10 seconds after they start talking they get shushed by some lady behind them and it's like, well, he was just the witness. Maybe you should just be eavesdropping in, on him instead of uh, just, you know, trying to shush him like a, like a real whatever. Basically, there's trouble with whatever you do in this city. The city is just so overrun. There is absolutely no privacy anywhere. So next, we're going to get the testimony of one of the lieutenants who had, was on the scene of the crime. Uh, he determined that Nick had been dead for about 30 minutes when they got there and that a sharp instrument had almost severed his head. So we're in Jallo killer territory here. And uh, they and then Briggs takes a stand in his own defense, which is a pretty rare thing in these da uh, these days, but it probably was more common back then. And uh, the reason he had gone back to Nick's that night was to repay the 30 cents. Um, and, he, and they ask him, well, how did you know he'd be there? It's like, well, I just took a chance that he'd be there. Um, you know, I mean, like, I mean, it does say Nick's coffee on the, on the sign. So it's not, it's not that big a leap. I'm, I'm not, uh, a criminal's rights person, but, 
I got to give it to Briggs there. Uh, so then they, uh, they determined that no money had been taken. He didn't take any of the money from the, uh, register. So, so getting just into the logistics of the whole situation, Briggs is, there's some ambiguity there as to whether he's guilty or not. And at that point they realize a juror is asleep. And so this is turning into such a circus that they have to get the judge's attention. Who's like having a daydream to wake up the uh, man um, who is, who's the juror who's asleep. And then when, once he does, he's like, Oh, I, he's like one of those classic uh, character actors. Oh, I had a toothache that was keeping me up last night. And the judge, instead of having something witty, he was just saying, well, that's too bad. I mean, you could have given him something, you know, a little bit, something to work with, but whatever. So after Mike caught him, uh, you know, standing over the body, Briggs ran and he was later caught packing his bags. And um, also at this point is when they, the uh, prosecutor notes, you know what, this is not your first crime, is it? Isn't it? Uh, you kind of held up a gas station when you were a youth. Yes, when Briggs was a youth, you might call him a teen. Perhaps he was, you know, jogging uh, over to the gas station, whatever it was. But uh, that was all behind him. And uh, these leading questions uh, really get to Briggs, really get under his skin. He knows what the these this jerk's doing to him. And he's like, he starts yelling, I didn't kill him several times, which, of course, is the most effective defense uh, is to just yell, I didn't kill him. Uh, at the end, well, you're at the end of your rope on the stand. We know that's how that works. And it's such an emotional scene that it, it drives Jane from the courtroom. She has to get up and run out. Uh, of course, Mike follows. And um, she says she believes Briggs. And it's like, man, that kind of disloyalty, you're out immediately. I mean, thanks for saving my seat at the diner, but I'm not going to take that from you. If you're my woman and I'm testifying against someone, I don't need to hear that you don't believe me and that you think this person is not guilty. You're either for me or against me. And if you're against me, you're not getting any part of that $12 raise a week. Let me tell you. And not only that, she's like, um, you know, if they convict him, it'll be on your testimony. So it's like, she's just going to twist the knife. Like how, how many years are you going to twist the knife on me on this one? If, if you know, this, our plans go forward, uh, which, you know, at this point she's, um, canceling their uh, apartment hunt they were going to go apartment hunting but uh um parent or they were going to go see that apartment that he would found but uh she calls that off so he he kind of simps out and says well how about coffee instead which she says yes to but of course this is classic classic men women stuff uh you know better to learn this now from a movie than learning from it from a bitter experience if she cancels it on you on one thing you let her go you drop her you don't offer any kind of second venue uh, you let her go, and maybe uh, she'll she'll come crawling back to you. And if she's uh, sufficiently apologetic, maybe you can accept her uh, to uh, do something else at a later time. But no, you're your own man. You've got work to do. In fact, he literally has work to do. He has to go away to the press room and make a call to um, report, you know, what happened. And just to further point out what a simp uh, Mike's being. Uh, when Martin passes by Jane in the in the hallway, she's like, uh, "Tell tell Mike I I had to leave." So not only does she cancel the date, she doesn't even even wait around to tell him herself, and uh, she just bails. So I don't know. 
I'm having I'm having some weird uh, feelings about this Jane here, but we'll see if she uh, does some other things to uh, improve her uh, her standing uh, as a potential mate. You know, I'm just looking out for Mike here, and uh, Mike needs a friend at this point, so that's why he's got Martin. Uh, Mike, you know, further he's just making further excuses for this Jane, saying that she's upset by the trial. So he and Martin they're going to go for a drink, which is actually it sounds like a much more fun time. And so they're in the bar drinking, and Martin's a pretty cool character. Um, you know, Mike's telling his troubles about, you know, what if this Briggs is actually not guilty, and, you know, I testified against him. And Martin's like, eh, so what? They execute him. There's too many people in the world anyway. I mean, you need... See, this is the kind of friendship someone needs. This is the so sort of support someone needs, uh, you know, to get through life in this harsh city, Right? And, you know, I just, I think uh, Mike just can't appreciate Martin. So, you know, that's, that's going to be to his detriment. He's going to be further tormented in his head if he'd just taken the more Martin approach to life. I think, uh, well, we wouldn't have this wonderful movie, but, you know, maybe he'd be a little more successful in life. Next, we're going to have the verdict, which is a guilty. Uh, Briggs gets taken away. It's very dramatic. He's crying. Uh, he's yelling. It's echoing through the, the court. And uh, Mike looks at the scale. There's like a uh, statue of the scales of justice. And there's like this weird, you know, expressionist kind of shadowy uh, hue to the whole thing. And then, uh, you know, it's later on and the, the press room is, is quieter and dark. And Mike's calling Jane and he's inviting her to Tony's. And guess what? She declines because that's what she's going to do. Stop being an idiot, Mike. Um, this guy, man this guy anyway there's a there's a really cool it's it's basically this is one of the until things get even more nightmarish later on in the film this is one of the great uh you know set pieces the expressionist lighting as he walks through these hallways and around the through the court and everything it's really great looking and they're repeating uh, like briggs you know shoutings it's, it's kind of like replaying through his mind it's really well done and uh, Mike's walking home, and he's really doubting himself. He's having these rationalizations. You know, basically, there's a war in his mind. When you're when you're an idiot like Mike, as I'm, I'm now declaring him to be, you're gonna have all this self doubt and recrimination, uh, really brought on by his woman. Let's face it. And so he's walking by the diner where the crime had taken place, and now um, it says uh, Jack's place uh, instead of Nick's. And, you know, they're just cogs easily replaced in the city, in this terrible, terrible city. So he goes to his walk-up, and uh, he notices there's a weirdo on the stairs. And guess what? It's Peter Lorre. Um, Peter Lorre kind of tips his hat and smiles at him, and Mike just walks past him, which is which is actually kind of a good move. Like, you don't want to, uh, you know, engage with uh, some sort of anyone, really, but especially not a weirdo like Peter Lorre. So we get to see inside Mike's building, and it's kind of this gloomy dump, which I would love, but it is kind of a gloomy dump. It's not like the, a well-status uh, place that you uh, loved bringing a, a, a grateful woman home to or anything like that. So anyway, he's just walking up, and he passes by his, his snoring neighbor's door. Apparently there's something uh, we'll find out about this neighbor, and... Um, it sets off more of Mike's uh, internal monologue. He's like, uh, he's really tired of living next to this snoring animal. He really wants out of this freaking place. And he he recalls the first time he met, meets this guy. Uh, was he Mr. Ming? That's why I got his, his notes down. 
Let me see if that's right. Okay, I just checked the IMDb. It is Mr. Ming. That's great. That's awesome. So anyway, uh, the first time he met uh, Mr. Ming was he was in his uh, room typing. I guess it was after 10 o'clock at night. And uh, the, the landlady uh, breaks in. Her name is, Mr. Uh, is Mrs. Kane. And she comes in with Ming, uh, apparently the Merciless, uh, because uh, he, they start. he's complaining about uh, the typing going on. And he's, he's really like uh, a berater, like, He's such an asshole. Like, it's not so much even that he has a complaint. It might even be a valid complaint that you'd be using a loud typewriter at night uh, after 10 o'clock. But just the way he's just, like, a, goes about it is just, like, doubly distasteful. So you're really not meant to have any sympathy at all for this guy. And he's also bald. So, you know, again, this tells you everything you need to know about this character. Uh, who's actually, he was a pretty cool character actor. I forget. He, I know he has Solomon, so com- some other things. But uh, you you recognize him, or at least his type, when you see him. So after Mike has that reminiscence, he walks out his door for some reason. And he sees, uh, who's Peter Laurie? And Peter Laurie's actually sneaking uh, in out of um, uh, Ming's room. But when he sees Mike, he, slam- he slams the door and, and, uh, and goes back in, you know. So Mike, being a, a sneaky, crafty journalist, trying to get a scoop, he there's a you know uh, off to the side there's a bunch of shadows that he can hide in. So he does, and he slams his door to make it sound like he went back inside, and uh, you know ducks into the shadows. And that's when Lori uh, creeps out again. And of course, that's such suspicious behavior that Mike feels emboldened enough to yell, "Looking for someone," uh, which. You know, I guess that's a decent enough thing to say. But again, they could have given him a little bit of snappier dialogue. But uh, Peter Lorre takes off. Uh, Mike starts chasing him, and he and then he falls down, uh, basically down the stairs. And uh, so, which gives uh, Peter Lorre enough time to escape. And you always wonder when when a character is chasing someone and he falls, did he really fall or uh, by accident, or was he actually hoping that? the uh, person would get away and he wouldn't have to capture him. It's one of those little existential uh, things you got to think about. But to his credit, he does get up pretty quickly, runs out the door and looks for him. But uh, Peter Laurie's hiding in the shadows himself underneath the stairwell, or, uh, you know, the concrete stairs outside. And so, you know, basically he has to give up after that because he's completely disappeared. So Mike uh, walks back in and he notices Ming is no longer snoring. It's completely silent. And so that immediately means uh, he's been murdered. Mike just totally hones in on that as, as what's happened. But uh, he stops himself from touching the uh, door, the doorknob of uh, Ming's uh, door, because he remembers that on the stand, one of the cops had said that uh, the fingerprints will always give you away. So he doesn't want to get involved. He doesn't want uh, anything like that, even though he did, in fact is a witness again uh, to something strange, at least, and uh, he, he almost uh, got into a physical altercation with this strange individual. So he goes back into his room, and he starts knocking on his wall, the shared wall he has with Ming, to see if he can uh, rouse his attention, and uh, he, he doesn't really get it, but he's starting to think about uh, uh, Briggs um, and you know what he had said to Nick earlier, uh, in the week that it made him look seem so guilty, and uh, he's like, "Well, you know what? Uh, if uh, Ming's murdered, it's not like they'll think I did it or anything." Which is, you know, again, this is a very short movie, so they've got to kind of contr- uh, you know, 
contract everything and uh, get, keep the ball rolling. So they don't spend a whole lot of time about how he arrived at this decision, but basically it's kind of this Kafka-esque uh, psychological guilt. He's uh, identifying himself with the murderer uh, almost instantly. And he does remember this time. There was this time at at, at all places, at Nick's Coffee Shop of all places. Uh, it was late at night, and he was um, having some uh, a chat with his friend Martin over some coffee. And uh, he noticed that Ming walked in, because by the way, the the his apartment is right across the street from uh, this coffee shop. Uh, so Ming walks in and orders some milk from the uh, the, the soda jerk up, up at the counter. I guess that would be Nick. Uh, so these there's these two ladies there, and uh, one of them, as they're walking away, they have this like classic uh, 40s lady dilemma, which is she's got a run, run in her stocking, which she stops, and uh, Ming's uh, right there, just leering at them openly, at her and her legs. Uh, so that's when Martin says, you know, get a load of this guy. He's a real perv. And uh, this is something I witnessed in life a couple of times where you're, at a table making fun of some stranger over there and then the stranger walks over because they know someone and this is that's what happens here ming walks over and says uh, well he doesn't actually say hi to mike but he's like with another admonishment for some stupid reason he always has to speak like this he's like you shouldn't be drinking coffee this late at night you should drink milk like this but you're right to sleep it's like yeah so you can freaking snore all night i guess so after that, Ming just, you know, walks out and crosses the street. You can see him through the window. It's kind of funny how he crosses the street looking for traffic and everything. Just one of those funny things. And uh, and Mike's just really had enough of this guy. And he's just like, I sure would like to kill him. And then Martin's got another great line. He's like, well, my boy, there's murder in, every, in the heart of every intelligent man. See, that's again, Martin, full support, fully backing you up. That's why he's a real friend. I'm not saying there's not a way, sometimes you do have to give constructive criticism to your friends and allies, but let's just say Jane does not have that part down. So uh, after that, Mike, <laughs> Mike's not done. He starts talking about wanting to slit his throat and stomping on this worm. And, you know, that's when that's when Martin has to say, OK, enough. See, you got to got it. That's how you handle it. But anyway, that's Mike's memory of the time he uh, threatened to kill someone who may or may not be dead at this moment. And uh, you got to say, well, you know what? It was Martin. Martin might have just kept his mouth shut, which is what, you know, a real friend would do. Uh, so next next time, uh, there's also uh, another memory he has. His memory of a, uh, it was about a month ago, he on this rainy night, he and, he and Jane walked up uh, to his room and you know you would think oh what a what a perfectly romantic thing uh caught in the rain in the city but uh he makes a move on her and she's kind of defensive so at this point she's kind of guarding her virtue things must be a, a little bit earlier in the relationship or whatever you know she's playing a little hard to get uh but she does take off her wet stockings um which i guess i guess is what you would do um Stockings just don't play that big a part in our lives as much as they used to, I don't think, which is a it's a, which is a damn shame, I'll say that. But uh, it's not too long after that that the door breaks open again, and it's Mrs. Kane and Ming yet again. Get off my dick, lady and guy. I mean, Christ, a Rooney. But uh, now the complaint is that he's got a woman in his room, which uh, Mike says, you know, 
that was never said anything about this and and she says no i told you it was against the rules from the beginning so we've got a classic uh, standoff there that never really gets resolved but uh you know basically she's giving him shit about that so uh ming who's always on leg patrol apparently points out that uh, she's got bare stockings which means she must be a real whore um he didn't apparently he didn't overhear her uh turning it mic down just seconds earlier but you know i mean he you know how do i say this when you're when you act kind of like a puritan it's like oh what are you hiding uh you know yourself about your own self uh when you accuse someone else uh which you know i mean there's some merit to that argument but people really go overboard and take it to mean you can be a total degenerate uh, openly and out in public, and that means you're a great person, which is going a little bit too far in the other direction, I would think. So that, anyway, Mike gets really pissed off about the whole thing, and he grabs Ming by the collar and is like, get him out of here before I kill him. So again, that's not the greatest thing to say, given the circumstances of what would follow. Um, so anyway, they, they rush out very indignantly, and... Uh, you know, Jane's crying, she's upset, so they basically put on their, their, uh, coats again, and they go out, and of course, she's feeling better by the time they get down the stairs, and as they're walking down, Ming just openly, like, looks out, out, uh, actually just stands over the, uh, the stairs, and is just staring down at him with, like, this real weird, uh, grin, it's like, this guy is really bold, he really sucks, uh, hope someone kills him, someone like Peter Laurie, but we'll, we'll see if that happened. Uh, but anyway, they get down to the bottom of the stairs, and they that's, this is the first time uh, they talk about marriage. Jane actually brings it up, and they they worry a little bit about money, but you kind of see where these kids are headed, these crazy kids. And they it, it the scene ends pretty nicely, them uh, holding each other. So eh, I think I think that was a a good day overall. Things were done. So anyway, but as Mike's thinking about this, he's just. Um, getting more paranoid and you can tell there's a like a very a very subtle but very good shot uh when he comes out of that uh flashback the camera's kind of like tilted up looking at him and it's at a crazy angle you see the the nice little uh, expressionist touch that uh the director edward ulmer brought to this production and so this is when he's really telling himself you know ming's not dead there's no reason to assume that um, you know, whatever. So he lays down and he has a crazy dream sequence. There's these men crowding around him and badgering him. Again, it's very Kafka-esque. And they find his knife. There's a, that he sees a paper boy selling a newspaper. It's one of those old time, you know, extra, extra uh, newspaper boys. And uh, Jane gets a paper and she, she screams reading it. And there's this great shot of her doing it. Uh, it's basically, again, shot upwards at her. And there's these like tall buildings just towering over her, like really oppressing her. It really connects, you know, the city with uh, her, uh, her, you know, pain and misery. So he's in, he's in jail and um, he's denying it. And it's like, obviously this great expressionistic cell, a lot of space. Really, I mean, if you were uh, put into custody, you would want a cell like this, which has, you know, so much empty space and room to really stretch out in. You wouldn't really feel super confined. It's just the shadows would be a little weird. And, you know, Jane, in, at least in dream form, might believe Mike, but uh, his lawyer uh, just laughs at him. Uh, you know, he advises him to fall on the mercy of the court. And so we get into the more courtroom, again, expressionist courtroom lighting. And um, 
Kane's, uh, Mrs. Kane's testifying that Mike said, I'm going to kill you. You know, she's really playing it up in this overstated way. And Jane is uh, trying to play it off. But even in dream form, she can't really defend Mike, which is pretty funny. And then when Mike's on the stand, he's like, you know, I hated Ming, but uh, he pleads that he's innocent and they won't even look at him, which, you know, of course, there's no parallel right now going on of some sort of trial that's totally overblown and unjust. But, you know, this is just movie world where these things can happen. Right. And so the stranger is actually uh, sitting in the courtroom in the empty gallery. And so Mike's pointing him out, trying to say, that's the guy, that's the guy. But he's sentenced guilty anyway, and he's to be put to death. And, uh, you know, the judge tur- the judge himself turns into this death just slash justice statue. It's like half, you get the idea, it's the half death, half justice. Anyway, he's in the cell with his priest now, and Briggs is yelling at him from the other cell. And again, Elisha Cook Jr., what a great guy, what a great actor, and, and so many great film noir films and other films uh, as well, like Salem's Lot and uh, Rosemary's Baby, but a total film noir veteran, uh, often playing just the most unlucky people. And he's not too lucky in this movie either, uh, but anyway, he's a great guy. I always love seeing him pop up in films. And uh, so anyway, now he's going to have the long walk to the, the Green Mile or whatever they call it in this particular death house. And uh, the the people walk in unison. It's a very creepy effect. It totally works. It's, it's like a great horror moment, even though this is more of a film noir type film. And so they're getting him into the chair. This is the great days of the electric chair. And just to make things even more absurd, Ming walks in with his, you know, milk. And he's like, I told you not to drink coffee before bed. And that's when he wakes up. So Mike's like really erratic now like you would think after he woke up from a bad dream like that he was like oh it was just a dream i can get a hold of myself and i guess he's gonna try to do that he's he pours himself some water from a pitcher i guess this is from the days before rooms had uh running water and a faucet he basically just kept water in a pitcher there real cheap room uh and he still doesn't hear anyone snoring so he like he ends up knocking on ming's door and then he opens it uh reluctantly and basically, you know, through the music and through Mike's expression that Ming is dead. He, we don't actually see his body, uh, which saves a little bit of uh, money on uh, the cast there. So, <laughs> again, me, uh, Mike's just totally playing himself. He does, he does everything wrong. Everything that he just learned not to do in Briggs' case, he starts doing. He runs back to his room to pack suitcase because, of course, they're going to instantly arrest him because they think he's guilty. Then he runs downstairs because there's no phone in his room. Another cheap out uh, there. And he calls Jane, uh, wakes up the roommate. So that's another witness, right? Great. And um, he's like, uh, Jane, meet me in the park and bring all your money. No time to explain now. And I guess it is cool that she actually went and did it. So I guess that is a mark in her favor. Uh, So I got to hand it to her at least there. And he tells her about what's going on. And now he's got to leave town. And so uh, she gives him a dollar, which is enough to leave town and start over a whole new life in 1940, right? Uh, And and he tells her that Ming's neck was cut just like Nick's. Uh, So it's got to be the same guy. And Jane is like... So Briggs is innocent. It's like, damn, focus, Jane. I'm the one in trouble here. And you're worried, still worried about this other guy? I told you she was no good. Uh, but anyway, she convinces him to go to the police to help uh, find this man. Uh, 
which again is going to end up just making things even more complicated. Uh, they call the cops, apparently. Um, Lori, Peter Lori is actually in the area. He's like hiding behind a car as the cops arrive. And then Mike does too. And they and he meets up with the lieutenant. And uh, they're telling about, he's telling him about the man hanging around, the strange man. Uh, so they have to go wake up the DA to t- tell him about it. So they actually even, they go to the DA's room. Uh, DA, the district attorney, he's in bed. Uh, and Mike is just insistent on Briggs uh, being innocent. It's like, now now you've got uh, Jane's social justice narrative working on, on him. So he's not, he's not even worried about him, about like catching the guy. He's just like, oh, no, Briggs is the one innocent. Poor Briggs. Everything's about this guy. And the district attorney, he's actually kind of a cagey, sly character because he's like, okay, and you're saying all this because you had a premonition? And, uh, and then Mike's like, well, I also had a nightmare. It's like, come on, come on, Mike. You know you have a lot more firm evidence than just the stuff that's going to make you sound crazy. You saw him. You saw the guy leave his room. So let's keep let's keep it to concrete stuff here. Uh, this is not the time for your uh, womanly uh, intuitions and, and nightmares and portents. Come on now. And our streetwise DA also points out that Mike found both the bodies. Um, which just a short callback to our pieces episode. Bracken never did that to Kendall, which he should have done. But anyway. Uh, he starts asking Mike if insanity runs in his family. Now, when a DA asks you that, that's kind of a bad sign. And so he orders uh, Mike be taken down to the headquarters as a material witness. And uh, Mike, uh, not necessarily the best time to pull this out. He says, well, I guess you'll be governor yet. Uh, you know, like, okay, I get it that uh, you think uh, this guy has a selfish motive. But seeing as how you're kind of at his mercy, you might not want to point that out at this particular moment as you just uh, dig the hole deeper on yourself. So anyway, after this, uh, basically, Mike's going to be out of the movie. <laughs> Mike's, such a, Mike's such a slob, such a, uh, a not great character, that he's basically being taken out of this movie, because now Jane is going to have to take up the, uh, the the cause here. In fact, she's just at work in her, her own little world. You know, like There's no reason for the camera to be on her when she gets a call. Uh, saying that Mike's been arrested. It's like almost a meta moment there. So anyway, uh, she realizes, okay, now now that Mike's in a helpless situation, now she's going to be all for Mike. That's a very interesting thing. That's very interesting, actually. When he was on top of the world, she was always trying to sabotage him. Now that he's in behind bars, she's trying to help him. That's something about that actually now that i think about it but anyway basically what her her job's going to entail basically interviewing a bunch of the city dwellers you know all the basic city dwellers of the time you've got the italian fruit vendor you got the mailman uh you, and she's asking about him if she, anyone's seen a man with big protruding eyes and a white scarf you know someone with thick lips someone that's really creepy someone like that you ever seen anyone like that you gotta wonder if Peter Lorre, when he saw this movie, he was offended by this part. Uh, but I, I have a feeling uh, he 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 realized, uh, you know, I mean, with the cartoon, I mean, they had freaking uh, Mary Melody's cartoons making him look like a uh, stand next to Frankenstein's monster and stuff. So I guess I guess he knew what was going on and was okay with it. And anyway, after all this long day of questioning, uh, she gets nothing. So guess what, Jane? You're terrible at this. So she decides to go to the diner for a coffee. 
And uh, that's when Peter Lorre walks in. And this is like she couldn't actually get any uh, evidence by design, but it happens to be that something's going to fall into her lap here right now because uh, he walks in and he he orders uh, two raw hamburgers, which <laughs> incidentally cost 20 cents. That's, again, I love I love the money in this movie and in movies of this time. Uh, so she's like, well, this guy's pretty creepy. So she follows him outside and you think like, oh, he's a vampire or a ghoul or something, but actually he's just feeding a stray dog. And it's like, it almost fools her. It almost fools her childish woman heart. But then she sees his scarf. And so she realizes, oh, that is him. So she runs over to him and uh, asks to uh, ask him to walk her home. And uh, he's really suspicious. He's been kind of suspicious from the beginning. And he's like, why are you looking at me? Which that's the best I can do as far as Peter Lorre goes. I've heard worse. So anyway, he starts asking uh, her about, you're, you're not going to try to send me back, are you? And uh, this is really great dialogue. This is when the movie becomes like a total classic and really memorable to me. It really is Peter Lorre's performance. Uh, from this kind of like shy weirdo kind of character to like something really, really menacing. And uh, it's just a masterful to watch. And, you know, you might say the rest of this, you know, despite the camera angles and, and the innovation there, it was kind of a standard B picture kind of movie. But even even that, it's elevated even further uh, with this performance, I think. And uh, this is also, we got to give something to Jane here because now she realizes she's in danger uh, being all alone at night uh, on the street with this strange character. So she's got to walk carefully here, uh, tread very carefully. And she's like, well, the basically she realized this guy's broken out of an institution is what's going on here. And so he's worried about her being sent by them to capture him. And uh, she's like, well, they wouldn't send a woman, would they? And uh, he's like, uh, no, they wouldn't send a woman. And in fact... Uh, the only person who was ever nice to me was a woman. She's dead now. That's another great line. Um, and then she's and he starts talking about how they pour ice over you. It's a really cool, again, just a really cool um, uh, set series of uh, images and dialogue and stuff. So, uh, you know, they've been having a very fine, casual conversation about the uh, doctors pouring ice over you and the straight jackets and everything. But then... You know, that's when he decides to just slip in the old uh, factoroo that uh, he had to kill Nick. I mean, he had to kill Nick. It wasn't that he killed Nick. He had to kill Nick. Uh, and that's about, that's the signal for Jane to uh, leave at that moment. So she tries to get into Mike's building and try to bluff her way in, uh, saying, you know, like this is her place. But um, uh, Mrs. Kane answers the door and she's like not picking up the signals that this is a fellow woman in distress and that you should help her. And so she gets the door slammed in her face. And that's when Laurie is like, he realizes uh, the jig's up. Like this woman, is, there's, is something um, very weird about this woman, Jane. Uh, and so the best thing to do is to start strangling her. And she ends up breaking free. Like, come on, Peter Laurie, you've killed th two people already. Certainly killing this woman shouldn't be that hard. But anyway, she breaks free and she runs across the street and uh, he chases her, but he it's perfect timing for uh, her. She gets by, but he gets hit by a truck. And then the driver gets out. Now he's panicked and he has to explain himself about how he hit his brakes, but it's a big truck. You can't stop in time. And he asked her to be his witness. So again, there's just such paranoia and guilt about 
you know, what will happen to me in this horrible system that we have here about this cruel, cruel city. And it just infects every character. You can just tell the uh, low trust society is being born right before our eyes here, right? You know, you don't have to read uh, Slaughter of Cities to, um, to get that, although that is a great book. So old Bug Eyes is like lying on the ground under the truck about to die. And uh, the, the witnesses gather around him and sure enough, he confesses that uh, he did kill those people, but he's not going back to the institution at least. And then he dies. And so that's pretty much it. We now know that Mike will be released. We've got Briggs will be released. We've got the real killer. He's been punished. Uh, now it's just the poor truck driver needs a little bit of therapy. Of course, that probably did not happen in this world. Uh, but that's a pretty good ending. And so we're at the uh, back at that lunch counter that we started with. And uh, the uh, Mike and Jane are saying goodbye to the counterman who was so nice to him, and everyone's so happy. Mike's got the marriage license for him, and they're headed to the court to make it official, and they're going to go out and take a taxi. And guess who the taxi driver is? It's Elisha Cook Jr. himself. He's set free. Everyone's uh, happy and smiling, and they drive off. And I guess now everything's good again. And if only that bastard FDR hadn't been in office, maybe things would have stayed good. But I guess that's about time to stop talking about this particular episode. Um, so that was Stranger on the Third Floor. Wonderful film. Um, I don't know. I think we, should, we could do more film noir in the future. But I think for a while we better keep it, again, bonkers and, and silly. So I'm not sure exactly what film we'll be doing next week. Um, but it will be off the charts uh, insanity is what I'm hoping for. Of course, now is when my stomach starts growling now that I'm at the end. This always happens. Uh, so uh, I guess we'll be back with another silly episode. If you want to uh, suggest a silly film, uh, you, can, you can do that over at Instagram at stain underscore crimson. Uh, that's probably the best place to uh, drop uh, correspondence of a gray wax nature. Got kicked off Twitter. Uh, for reasons unknown, and so we'll leave it at that. Uh, this has been The Crimson Stain, and I'll talk to you next time.